This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. I tell you what, he's a lot more obsessed with me than I am with him. If Donald is the nominee, Hillary wins and she wins by double digits. If you're a Hillary supporter, you're rooting for Donald. Obfuscate the real problems facing our society and find somebody you can blame. That's what demagoguery is about. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who kicked his only black supporter out of a rally because he assumed he was a protester. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I've got to say that I went most of my life without experiencing anything significant in the way of anti-Semitism. But this year it's been different. On Twitter, I get a fair amount of real ugliness when I comment on Donald Trump. People send me cartoons of hook-nosed Jews, yellow stars, pictures of Auschwitz. I think you know the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And it turns into a deluge whenever Ann Coulter uses my Twitter handle. She's the Aryan fairy princess of the alt-right. But what I and a lot of other journalists with Jewish names have been experiencing on social media is nothing compared to what some conservatives who have stood up to Donald Trump have been living through this year. They've faced threats of violence against their families threatening phone calls, people vandalizing their websites with racist slogans and pornography, attempts to hack into their email and share their private information. Their children have been confronted in public places. David French and his family have been victims of Trump trolling to an extent that's truly shocking, and he was brave to write about it in the National Review. I'll be back to talk to him right after we do the tweets. Tim Kaine has been praising the Trans-Pacific Partnership and has been pushing hard to get it approved. Job killer. I will bring jobs back and get wages up. People haven't had a real wage increase in almost 20 years. Clinton killed jobs. Wow. The failing New York Times has not reported properly on Crooked's FBI release. They are at the back of the pack. No longer a credible source. Crooked Hillary launched her political career by letting terrorists off the hook. Hashtag drain the swamp. Hillary's been failing for 30 years in not getting the job done. It will never change. The state of Florida is so embarrassed by the antics of crooked Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz that they will vote for change.
My guest today is David French. He's a lawyer, a writer, an Iraq war veteran. You might remember him as someone who considered running against Donald Trump as an independent conservative candidate back at the beginning of the summer, but then decided not to. David, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, thanks for, thanks so much for having me. I, I, I have a feeling that for the next few years, I'm going to be the guy who for eight days decided very publicly was deciding not to run for president. <laughs> well, you have Bill, Bill Crystal to thank for that. He was he described <laughs> you, I guess, as he he thought the ideal candidate to run against Donald Trump. And and uh, uh, frankly, I kind of thought he was right. I mean, personally, I kind of wish you were in this race, but that's not what I wanted you to come on and talk about today. Well, that's kind of you. And as I've gone around the country, I found that there are literally dozens of people who feel the same way as you did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But the reason I did invite you on, David, was to talk about this piece uh, you wrote in National Review uh, last week called The Price I've Paid for Opposing Donald Trump, which I have to say is the most harrowing thing I have read about the abuse and the threats someone has been subjected to for standing up against Trump. Yeah, you know, this this story has been unfolding really over the better part of a year. Uh, It goes back to September 2015, when I noticed that Ann Coulter, who, as you know, is one of uh, Trump's leading media cheerleaders, was tweeting out a lot of themes and messages that are very consistent with alt-right messaging. And and for those who don't know what the alt-right is, I mean, it's kind of a complex thing to describe, but I I tend to use just the shorthand, uh, kind of a young emerging movement of online white nationalists. And these guys saw my, uh, she made these tweets. I wrote a short post in the corner, which is National Review's group blog. And some of these alt-right guys saw it and then immediately began deluging my Twitter feed with some of the worst stuff that I've ever seen. It was images of my youngest daughter, who was seven years old at that time. She's African-American. We adopted her from Ethiopia several years ago. Um, in a gas chamber with Donald Trump in an SS uniform, pushing the button to try to kill her, uh, pictures, her, her face uh, photoshopped into images of slaves, some of the worst racial epithets I've ever seen, including words I'd never even heard before. Uh, it was unbelievable. And then the next day, it just got worse because both my wife and I are writers. So National Review, I wrote a longer piece that highlighted some of these tweets just to explain to people what's going on out there. My wife wrote a short piece for the Washington Post online as well. And then the floodgates really opened. It went from dozens to hundreds of posts. And then they found my wife's uh, blog on Patheos, a religious website, and began to flood it with images of um, African-American, mainly African-American men being murdered, being executed, committed suicide, and horribly graphic stuff. And you know, we we then spent the next several days blocking and muting and reporting and just scrambling to try to get this under control. And in the meantime, neighbors were getting concerned for our safety, for their safety. I mean, the images I just were beyond horrible. And we hoped that that was the end of it, uh, but it was really just the end of the beginning of it. And it it escalated, uh, especially when my name was floated out there and leaked out there as someone considering taking on Donald Trump. Uh, and that's when it leaped off of Twitter and off of comment posts and into uh, phone calls and emails and threats. And so it, it, it's been it's been an ordeal. So the, the, there's some kind of line 
that I mean, the, as as horrible as the as the hate speech and the abuse is, there's a further line that gets crossed with what's called doxing, where people start to circulate your private information, where you live, your phone number, your email address, and you start to get these abuse shading into threats personally, like you're actually right. in fear for your personal safety. Right. I mean, when we got, e- you know, directly emailed threats, we contacted law enforcement, got law enforcement involved. And then just a few weeks ago, we had perhaps the most disturbing incident of all, which stumps us to this, to this day, frankly, and it stumps law enforcement. We've we've contacted state and federal authorities to deal with this. And my, my wife was on the phone with her father, uh, with her father, my father-in-law, and Someone broke into the call and started yelling about Donald Trump, uh, speaking profanities to my my wife and my father-in-law while they're on this phone call, which, you know, the only way I thought that was possible was if someone was in my father-in-law's house and picking up their landline and talking, because uh, my wife was on her iPhone. And so that led to a very fast and nervous search through the house, my father-in-law's house. There was nobody there. Uh, we contacted state officials. They didn't know. They put us in touch with the FBI. We've talked, my wife talked to folks in the FBI office in Memphis. They didn't know, uh, what's going on. And so it's a, it's a mystery. I mean, but that's deeply unsettling. Imagine a person breaking into, for example, this, this call right now. <laughs> and so, yeah, there are people who've belittled our experience saying, oh, well, it's just mean people saying things on, People saying mean things on the internet. It's orders of magnitude beyond that. Yeah, I mean, this when trolling becomes this kind of mob behavior, and you all, often it feels like it's directed or coordinated mob behavior. I mean, right. as you say, they organize around people like Ann Coulter, uh, but whatever that they seem to be somehow operating as part of a unit, not just as crazy individuals, and that is much more scary. Right, and and I think that that much is very clear. And and one thing that I I said in my piece, and I've said when I've talked about this, I wouldn't, I didn't want to write this just to share one family's story. I mean, I, I relate that there are many journalists who faced terrible things uh, as a result of this, these alt-right attacks, including my colleague, Jonah Goldberg, who's faced withering anti-Semitic hatred. Um, my friend, Ben Shapiro, has faced probably more anti-Semitic online communication than any journalist in America. And then a number of others, Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic, Bethany Mandel, uh, m- many other. I mean, it, it, there are numbers under the hundreds. And, and I'm sure you know people who, when they have taken on Trump, that it almost seems as if there's a, it's an organized campaign that immediately erupts. And again, if someone just says, oh, well, it's just mean people saying mean things on the Internet. Well, let me ask you how you would feel if you saw pictures of your children in those kinds of circumstances, if you had your timeline full uh, filled with pictures of people shooting themselves in the face or being shot in the face, these are that's so far beyond the line that any reasonable person would look at that and be deeply disturbed. I mean, I just take it as a given, David. I have a Jewish name, and of course, I'm doing been doing this podcast, which is critical of Trump. Uh, just on a regular basis, I get. You know, cartoons of hook new nose Jews and right. stuff from Disturmer and, you know, just vile stuff. And you point out, you know, but I have not had anything like I, w- I mean, I wouldn't begin to compare that to what you, you've experienced. It is particularly around if Ann Coulter responds to me on Twitter, it follows like a flood. 
Yeah. Uh, you point out that the attitude among journalists is be kind of macho about this. You, you don't want to show that it gets to you in any way. You're supposed to pretend to just brush it off, not care. But that's actually not how it feels. When you're on the receiving end of it, it is unpleasant. And that's why I'm just drawing a little analogy from my very minor experience yeah. of it to your super major experience of it. Well, I, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because – uh, you know, we, we don't want to feed the troll. You know, that's, that's the statement you hear all the time. You can't feed the troll. And the one thing that feeds the troll more than anything else is the notion that they're getting to you, that they're making your life miserable, that they're hurting you in any way. Um, these people are evil, and they glory in that. And so I, I went back and forth, literally, you know, for days on whether or not I should write this piece for that very reason, that I, I didn't want to give them any satisfaction. But, you know, I, I thought instead, you know, look, I mean, it's a much more valuable uh, to explain what's happening in our country right now than it is to put up some sort of false front. Um, and, and, and I would also point, I will point out, though, that if their ultimate aim is to silence me or to silence my wife or, or you or anyone else for that matter, they're failing in it miserably. Um, <laughs> for me, they're incentivizing me to speak. They're not silencing me, but I'm not going to say that it hasn't had an impact on our family. David, I wanted to ask you how you what you tell your kids about this. I mean, I think you may have some older children as well, but how do you how do you yes. what do you say? Well, you know, we're pretty transparent with our older two kids who are 17 and 15, a senior and a sophomore in high school. And, um, you know, since both my wife and I have been involved in, in politics and writing about politics for a long time, I mean, they they know more than the average kid about this. So. And plus, because we have family safety issues, look, you know, I'm, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter. My wife and I carry a handgun. My parents know, I mean, my kids know how to use a gun, my older kids. So they've been brought into the loop on this, and they're sobered by it. But, you know, their dad also went to Iraq in 07, 08. Yeah. They're used to adversity. Uh, now, my youngest, um, she knows nothing. We have completely insulated her from this. I mean, my goodness, she's eight years old. But, you know, the, the real challenge is going to be, you know, she's going to get older and she is going to know how to use Google and she's going to find this stuff. And before she does that, we're, we're going to have to have one of the most hor- terrible conversations you can imagine having uh, as to why this happened and why that there are people out there who believe this stuff. I mean, she's learning even in third grade, of course, about civil rights, about Martin Luther King, about Rosa Parks. Um, she even wanted to uh, rename our one of our dogs Rosa Parks, <laughs> and, um, you know. So she's learning that there is such a thing as racism, and, and honestly, it's like befuddling to her. Like, what? Somebody wouldn't like me because my skin is brown. It's just so hard to explain it. But this is a whole different order of magnitude that's impacting her personally. It's not something from the distant past. So. You know, what do I do? I don't I don't know. There's no playbook for this one. So with a lot of prayer and reflection, we're going to have to try to figure this out. What do you think is to be done about it? There was a there was an ADL report, I think, also last week that looked particularly at the anti-Semitism directed against journalists who've, who've written about Trump. And it's posited that it was a relatively small number of, of people like 2,000 or fewer who were generating a tremendous quantity 
of this content, particularly on on Twitter and other social media? Yeah, you know, I think that, that's a that's a tough question. I think that the the focal point right now is Twitter, and I think the focal point is Twitter for some pretty simple technological reasons. I mean, the whole way the thing is set up, uh, even if Twitter was as vigilant as it could possibly be, if you want to participate in Twitter, anyone who knows that you have a Twitter handle can have one clear shot at you first before they're banned or blocked or muted. And so you have this platform that is indispensable, I believe, in many ways for journalists and public figures to be on it. But to be on it means opening yourself up to this which then also means as soon as you do get these waves and these, these attacks, other people see it, uh, and an impact, and it has an impact far beyond the actual numbers. So there's some technological issues there that I think just makes all of us more vulnerable because of the way Twitter is set up. Then, but, you know, here's, here's the thing that really concerns me. I fully acknowledge that this is a pretty small group of people. I, I think, you know, the ADL report was very revealing on that, although I think they underestimate the overall actual support of the alt-right, which I Mm. think actually numbers in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, they were saying that a small number generated the biggest volume. They weren't saying there are only 1,600 people who send anti-Semitic or racist tweets. Obviously, that number is much, much larger. But what's truly disturbing is how much they punch above their weight on the Internet. And so... What ends up happening is you have much larger sites like Breitbart, which has ex- uh, published extended pieces rationalizing and justifying even this kind of behavior. Um, and then you have a GOP candidate who's put the head of Breitbart in the beating heart of his campaign. So it's things like that when you're, it's things like that that begin to mainstream, if not the kinds of images that I saw uh, in my own Twitter timeline on my wife's blogs mainstream the impulses and the anger behind them. And that, that I think, is truly dangerous. And that's something that if the GOP doesn't get a handle on that, it's going to be an extinction-level event for the party, and rightfully so. They're way more focused on the right than they are on the left. So someone like me who criticizes Trump from liberal side gets abuse, but Someone on the right or who's part of the conservative movement who criticized Trump is seen as a traitor and somehow they take a license with you that's beyond what they would say to anyone who didn't they didn't think should be somehow on their side. Right. I mean, I'm the conservative. I mean, I don't know if you've heard that term, but yes, but maybe you should explain it for people who are lucky enough to have not heard it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you're very fortunate if you have it. It essentially means I'm a cuckolded conservative. I've been compromised, have been uh, emasculated by my uh, support for the establishment. Um, it, it has a deeper and darker roots than that that I don't necessarily want to even go into. But it's a, it's a, it's a smear that is extraordinarily profane and malicious. And when they've labeled you a conservative, then you get what's coming to you. You deserve what you get. You're a traitor, as you said. You're the person who's stabbing Trump in the back. My response is, is there's nothing in the back about what I'm doing to Trump. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty open and obvious. But, uh, yeah, they, they treat you in that way. And so you're, you're the traitor. And I mean, I'm a double traitor because not only am I opposing Trump that, and this is, it's really dark, uh, is because I have a multiracial family, I'm race cucking. That's what they call it. I'm race cucking my family. And you get, I will get messages and, 
uh, that, you know, your, your child, your black child is going to grow up and kill you one day. And, you know, this kind of stuff that is um, this white nationalist, white identity politics, you know, Aryan kind of nonsense that's just purely evil. And so when you oppose Trump and you're doing it from the standpoint of a multi, you know, you, you have a multiracial family, that's just hitting all their hot buttons at once. Yeah. I remember that first surface with uh, John McCain in the 2000 campaign. Yes. He has an adopted South Asian daughter. And in the South Carolina primary, there started to be all this, you know, vile propaganda about, you know, first of all, saying it was his real daughter and it was a mixed race child. And, and that bringing out that kind of uh, extreme racist, uh, you, you don't even know what to call it, but um, it's and you know, and it raises the question as with all this stuff, what do these people actually believe? Because what they are claiming is so preposterous beyond its offensiveness. Right. You know, and and when you drill that down, when you drill it down to that, it's widely different things. I mean, they're kind of united in their opposition to various cultural and and uh, you know various cultural trends and political trends. They're not necessarily united in some sort of solution. But, you know, I think one thing you can call them is at heart, they're all ethno-nationalists that essentially what they're, they're saying is to every nation, there is an ethnicity and every ethnicity should have a nation and that they're different. They use terms like um, human bio, uh, biodiversity. Uh, and, and so they're extremely focused on racial differences, ethnic differences in ethnic and racial separation. And so if I had to say that that was some something that would be a, any sort of coherent mindset that they have, it would be that. And they hearken back, often well reaching back before the era of democracy. Some of them are monarchists. It's, it's a very bizarre. But gener- generally, they're, they're Hitlerian. I mean, they're, they're believers in some version of Hitler's type of, of racial, bogus racial theories. Right. Ethnicity is destiny. Uh, race is destiny. It, yeah. I mean, it's all that nonsense. They they will say they're not Hitlerian, most of them. <laughs> Some of them are proudly so. They will say they're not. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And and again, the idea, the idea that the GOP nominee would have in the middle of his campaign a guy whose website is probably responsible more than any other for mainstreaming some of this nonsense to the extent that you would even have for a while until these talk radio hosts, some of the talk radio hosts learned what it meant using terms like conservative and using terms like that to describe politicians that were insufficiently conservative or insufficiently, uh, insufficiently dedicated to Trump. And now they've stamped that out mainly, uh, but Putting that guy in the middle of your campaign is just simply stunning to me. Yeah. I mean, there are part of the question is who can really be held responsible here? Obviously, Trump, but obviously, Trump also can't be held responsible because he, he won't accept responsibility for everything. But there are these people like Ann Coulter, you know, and you, you single her out in, in peace. And in my experience, she's, she's a rallying point for these people. I mean, does she just have, she's a kind of troll herself. But does she have feel no sense of responsibility for un- unleashing this on on the world and on the mainstream conservative movement? You know, I have no idea. I mean, I think I don't. Uh, I've not talked to her about this. I I don't know her really, uh, and I don't think she would sit there and say to me to my face, "Oh, I'm glad you've been treated like this." 
but she would probably do is focus on larger issues. Look, this is just kind of the thing that happens. You're always going to have kooks and crazies, except she's fed them directly. Yeah, you know, accountability is a really good question. And, and I think accountability is particularly difficult, in all honesty, when you have such a fragmented media environment. Uh, once someone t- attains a certain level of prominence, they can hang on to an audience that will give them validation, uh, that will provide them with a good living, uh, that will give them a platform, no matter uh, how many other people condemn them. And in fact, they'll use that condemnation as fuel to their fire. So, you know, how, how do you say, well, like, for an example, an Alex Jones, or how do you, how do you hold someone like that accountable, <laughs> or an Ann Coulter, when that very shtick has been the thing that's either catapulted them into prominence or kept them in public prominence. And so accountability is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Are you, are you still on Twitter? Yes. Well, I mean, it's the, I think it's in, uh, and as I said, it's nearly indispensable. If there was a, another platform where I could get that fast in access to breaking news and to the thoughts of other thoughtful people and, and receive, you know, information from thoughtful folks I would choose, I would drop Twitter in a heartbeat. Um, but you know, look, good on them for creating a, a product that for many of us is indispensable. Um, but they've got a hidden vulnerability, and that I think I'm not alone in this. That there's an awful lot of people who would drop Twitter like a hot potato if they could find a product that had its features without its bugs. Yeah, I mean, they I I second what you're saying very much. I mean, it, it's uh, you know I couldn't live without Twitter, and and part of me still loves Twitter and actually enjoys it. But their inability to figure out a way to to control harassment and give effective tools to their users to to prevent it makes it so you're you know it's it's a it's a huge mixed blessing. It's so unpleasant on a daily basis as much as you need it as a tool and love being on it in another way. Right, right. It's a it's a uh, it's a product I have to have but dread to use. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a. That's a mixed blessing from a market position. So I think there's a, a few billion dollars to be made from somebody who can uh, figure out how to build a better mousetrap. There. Yes, or fix Twitter. All right. Well, David, thank you. It's a pleasure talking to me, and I, and I hope the worst of this is over. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We'll be back next week with more Trumpcast. We're getting closer, and I'm winning. There's going to be a surprise in Anaheim tonight, and there's going to be a surprise on Election Day. Me winning. Total and complete Trump slide. And nobody builds Trump slides like I do. I'm a fantastic builder. Best Trump slides in the world. That's what I do.